WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I am your host, Abby Newton. The Michigan State University basketball teams are still making their way through the NCAA basketball tournaments. The women's team is playing North Carolina right at this moment, and the men's team will be playing on Saturday. And to celebrate the excitement of the NCAA tournaments, I thought I would talk about it on the show. Tune in a bit later to get a full understanding of the economics behind the tournament. We talk about payouts, about prices, about tournaments, fees and the fan experience. Later on the show tonight, we'll be speaking with an MSU student who'll be biking across the country while building houses. We also have an MSU student veteran who is creating something called Project Hope. More on that in about 30 minutes. To end the show, I take you to the wild, wild west. This old train breaks down Then I could take a walk around See what there is to see Time is just a melody With all the people in the street Walking fast as the feet can take I might just roll through town And though my window's got a view Well, the frame I'm looking through Seems to have no concern for now So for now Again, I am Abby Newton, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. Now the NCAA tournament is among us. But who pays for it? Does it cost the school? What do you get when you win? To answer these questions and more, I spoke with Michigan State economics professor Ron Fisher. here at Michigan State. So you're talking about the NCAA tournament. It is well underway. And uh, first, who pays for the tournament? Well, it's a complicated system, but mostly uh, the revenue from the tournament comes from television. So the NCA has contracts with uh, a set of television networks uh, to cover the games, and that generates most of the revenue uh, that funds the tournament. There also are, is revenue from ticket sales, of course, at the events, but uh, the largest attendance is really only at the finals. Many of the regional uh, uh, sessions don't have very large attendance. So most of the money uh, comes from television, the television uh, networks that contract with the NCAA to cover the tournament. And what kind of figures are we looking at? Well, it's gotten very large. Uh, it's, very, it's actually a very interesting story, and, and Michigan State is connected to the story of how the NCAA tournament became a television uh, spectacle. Uh, it, it sometimes surprises people to know that it wasn't that long ago that only the finals were covered on television. 
the early rounds weren't broadcast at all. And so there was a, a young, fledgling network that was trying to uh, have 24 hours of sports programming, uh, an entity known as ESPN. Uh, and so in 1980, ESPN went to the NCAA and said, we would like to cover the early rounds of the basketball tournament. At that time, the NCAA only had a contract with CBS to cover the finals. And so ESPN, that was just a starting network, didn't have a lot of stuff to fill its time, uh, decided that they would uh, pay to cover the early round games. And that's the first time that the early rounds started to be covered. Why did the Big, uh, did ESPN think that was so interesting? Well, it was the year after uh, the time when the NCAA tournament was Michigan State and Irvin Johnson against Indiana State and Larry Bird. Uh, that final game uh, drew tremendous television attendance. And as a result, ESPN saw an opportunity. Uh, to cover the early round games. So until then, uh, television wasn't that big of a deal in terms of the NCAA tournament, and they didn't have nearly the amount of revenue that they receive today. Today, obviously, it's multiple millions of dollars uh, that are generated through through television broadcasting of the NCAA tournament. And do you foresee these, uh, you know, monsters, or excuse me, do you foresee the budget and the television and just the whole affair continuing to get bigger and bigger? I don't know if it can get bigger. Uh, the the NCA has really, uh, you know, pushed the envelope of generating. All the games are covered now. They they've added they added the uh, a few extra teams with the play-in games. So uh, without expanding uh, to more teams, it's it's hard to see that there's going to be the dramatic growth. Uh, that the NCAA saw when they uh, had, in, say, the last 10 years. And what kind of benefit do teams see from the tournament? Well, it's a, it, again, it's a complicated system. Uh, the NCAA pays the uh, expenses of all the teams that participate, not only in the NCAA basketball tournament, but in all NCAA tournaments. So if there's an NCAA national championship tournament and your team makes the tournament, the NCAA pays the team's travel costs, et cetera, for participating in the tournament. So the universities don't bear those costs. Uh, then the NCAA takes, of all the money that they receive from the tournament, 60% is paid out to the conferences of the teams that participate in the tournament. So uh, uh, a, a large fraction of the money ends up being returned essentially to the teams, not directly, but through their conferences. So of the total amount of money that the NCAA makes in a tournament, 60% is eventually returned to the conferences. So uh, in, in, in the case of the Big Ten, uh, the Big Ten receives money from the NCAA based upon how well Big Ten teams do in the tournament over a six-year period. It's a six-year cycle uh, that the NCAA uses to calculate the, uh, the conference shares of the revenue. And then the Big Ten shares that money with all of its schools. It's, the Big Ten shares the money equally. So it doesn't matter uh, whether you're in the tournament or not in the tournament. All the Big Ten schools uh, get the same amount of money uh, based upon the NCAA tournament success of league teams. So maybe we should root for Michigan every once in a while. <laughs> well, it, 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 the, the share of revenue that each league gets depends upon how many games uh, teams from that league have played over the past six years. Uh, 
So if you have more teams from your league make the tournament and they do well, so they continue to succeed, that means they play more games. That increases the share of revenue uh, that uh, that each league receives. I think uh, the the most recent number, if I remember it correctly, is that the Big Ten gets about the the, the Big Ten conference receives about twenty million dollars a year from the NCAA because of Big Ten teams' participations in the NCAA basketball tournament. And then that gets shared with all the teams. So then what kind of, I mean, I don't know if you'd know the kind of numbers we're looking at if you are a national champion or what that could pay in dividends in the future. Well, it doesn't generate any additional revenue directly mm-hmm, right. from participating in the, in the going further in the tournament because the, the, the revenue is all shared. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the Big Ten... Uh, shares revenue that they receive from all sources. So the Big Ten receives revenue from uh, the football team's participation in the BCS postseason games, like Michigan State in the Rose Bowl this year. Uh, The Big Ten gets money from their television contract with ESPN. Uh, The Big Ten generates money from the Big Ten Network, which they are part owners of. And all of that money then goes into the conference, and then the conference shares it equally among all the teams. So Michigan State's athletics department get somewhere between 20 and $25 million a year in shared revenue uh, from the Big Ten Conference. So you don't benefit individually, each team, from going further in the tournament because the revenue gains are all shared. What you gain is some, some notoriety some reputation. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of controversy about how valuable that is. Uh, But clearly people, you know, know at least the name of your basketball team. And that was my next question from a university standpoint. Besides, you know, the shared revenue they are receiving from the conference, are there any cost-benefit analysis that you see in terms of universities sending their teams or progressing through the tournament? There's been a lot of research on the issue of how athletics uh, success Mm -hmm. Uh, influences universities overall. And uh, the research is a bit mixed. Sometimes in our business, uh, researchers don't get clear-cut answers. Uh, But there's one clear result, one unambiguous result in the research, and that is that athletic success generates more donations to athletics departments. Now, Does it generate more donations to universities in general? The research is mixed on that. Sometimes it happens, sometimes not. Does it increase uh, enrollment or applications to a university? The research is more mixed on that. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The one unambiguous benefit of athletic success based on the research is better financial soundness Mm -hmm. for the athletics department. Mm Right, rightfully so. And um, from the fan standpoint, so you've got all kinds of fans who are getting excited for the tournament and are, you know, checking airline tickets just in case the team makes it to where they predict. So what kind of monetary expense are fans looking at, say, for the national championship? Well, obviously traveling uh, to, if you you wanted to travel to all rounds, it's tremendously (laughs) expensive. Uh, I I mean, the the NCAA made this decision a couple of years ago to try to reduce travel expenses by what they now call the pod system. So they they try to locate teams closer in the first round uh, to their their home base uh, to try to reduce travel costs. But in the end, if you're going to travel to all the games, obviously it can be multiple thousand dollars for each trip Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of airfare and hotels and those kinds of things. So you have to be a a devoted fan uh, uh, to to travel to all the the games. And, and, And what's happened in sports in general 
is, uh, and it surprises some people to learn this, but uh, in both professional sports and big-time college sports, football and basketball, attendance at games has been decreasing for a 10-year period. And the re one of the big reasons, of course, is that it now it's so easy it's to possible. sit at home, have your big screen, <laughs> high-definition TV. Beer in your hands. <laughs> you, you can easily watch the game at mm -hmm. home. And so all sports leagues are now concerned about what's going to happen to attendance because, on the one hand, it's very costly uh, to go to games. Uh, in, in the NCAA basketball tournament case, not only do you have tickets, but you have the travel. And uh, it's so easy. It's so convenient. It's so attractive now with the, uh, the digital technology uh, to watch the games at home. Um, another thought that consumes people in the couple days before the tournament starts is filling out the bracket. So what are your thoughts on the process of filling out a bracket and now all the monstrous prize money behind these brackets? It, it's, a, it's a tremendous activity that uh, so many people participate in. I see in the news that uh, President Obama has done his bracket and uh, has Michigan State going. even has Michigan State going far. So, uh, yeah, it's a very popular thing to do. And uh, doing it for fun is wonderful. What many people don't know is that betting on college basketball games is illegal in the United States. Mm -hmm. So if you are in one of these groups where, let's say, everybody puts in $5, fills out their bracket, and whoever does best wins the money, that formally is a federal crime in the United States. Betting on sporting on all sporting events in the United States is, is illegal by federal law. Now, is anyone going to prosecute you for your little $2 local pool? The answer is no. But uh, formally, betting on, on sports is only allowed in a couple of states that had it in place before the federal law is adopted, most notably in Nevada, in Las Vegas, where you can go to betting parlors, sports pool parlors, and bet. But, so everyone participates in the, uh, in, in the brackets, and that's a fun thing to do. But if you're doing it for money, formally, <laughs> not allowed. Um, so you may say, well, how about these contests where if you fill out your bracket, you can win things? That's not gambling because you don't have to put any money up. That's just a contest, and somebody else has put the prize money up. It's the gambling aspect, you posting money that you may win or lose, uh, that's formally not allowed by federal law. And what are your thoughts on you know the Quicken Loans, the ESPN bracket challenges, and have you filled out your own bracket? I haven't. Okay. Uh, and, uh, of course, I'm hopeless. You know, <laughs> economists are renowned disastrous forecasters, so it would be dead disastrous in my case. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, the contest just more just signifies how interesting uh, the uh, NCAA basketball tournament has become, how big of a thing it has become. So other firms, Quicken Loans and Buffett's operation, these other things, are trying to use that to draw attention to themselves by creating these kinds of contests. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a way, it's an, it's an advertising ploy for them uh, to use the NCAA basketball tournament as a way to, a way to draw interest uh, to their own businesses or their own activities. It's a risky one with $100 billion on the line. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Give it a shot. I mean, go for it, right? The, the odds are low. <laughs> and uh, my last question is, who do you predict winning the NCAA tournament? As I said before, economists are disastrous <laughs> predictors. Uh, one thing I guess we've learned 
uh, from the NCAA basketball tournament over the years is that there almost always are unexpected mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. There are always teams uh, that people really don't know a lot about uh, that end up doing very well in the tournament, sometimes make way to the Final Four. Obviously, from my point of view, it would be wonderful if Michigan State's team uh, went very far in the tournament. Uh, not just the men's team, but the women's team as well, both in the NCAA tournaments uh, this year. And so obviously I hope that they both do well. That would be great for them and great for the university. But one of the things that makes the NCAA tournament so interesting, such a spectacle, is that unexpected outcome, uh, which seems to pop up every year. And only time will tell. There you go. Absolutely. Will be. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. I enjoyed it. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. Ew. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Now, Logan Stark is a creative writing senior at Michigan State University, but he is also a veteran. He served as a Marine sniper in three deployments, one of which was in Afghanistan. Since his return, he has taken up biking as a way to mentally and physically heal from the war. In doing so, he discovered a way he could help fellow veterans rehabilitate through a program called Ride to Recovery. Through this, he created Project Hero. We have him in the studio to talk about this program. I, I got involved with an organization called Ride to Recovery um, first through a Michigan State study abroad in the summer of 2012. Uh, there was about 30 students, and we were traveling across Europe retracing the path of the Allies um, during World War II as they worked their way south into Germany. And at the time, I had been we had been visiting different cemeteries and different war memorials. Uh, we we saw quite a few statues from the Band of Brothers, which mm -hmm. is uh, one of the big airborne units. And so my time that I spent in the service was really heavy on my mind. And going to these cemeteries, it just brings back some of those feelings that you get. Um, and you start to miss the men you lost when you went to battle. 
and we were in Belgium, and we were at another one of the Band of Brothers memorials, and this stream of cyclists on road bikes starts going by, and we're just kind of watching them. We're getting ready to pose for a picture, and then all of a sudden, someone yells, go green, and we all look over there, not expecting to see a Spartan in the middle of Belgium, and this man, uh, John Peruk, stops and he talks to us, uh, and he just tells us that he's part of an organization called Ride to Recovery, and it's comprised of active and uh, veterans who have been injured or have been hurt in some way during their service. And they do these rides across the U.S. and a few abroad um, to find a way to regain some of that camaraderie you get in the mm -hmm. military and also to provide a physical activity and uh, kind of approach it with a whole healthy, healthy mind, healthy body type. Uh, approach and so immediately when I saw him in Belgium I knew that it was just something I wanted to be a part of mm -hmm. it was I could just tell it just gave off this impression of it was just a good thing and so <clears throat> the next summer after I um, published the documentary I made about my time in the service and coming back the Detroit Free Press ran an article and John Peruk, the same Spartan that was in Belgium, was waiting um, in the airport to do a ride recovery challenge, and he saw the article, gave me a call, and asked me to go on the Great Lakes Challenge, which was in August of last year, and we rode uh, 380 miles from Chicago to Detroit, coming through East Lansing. And it was such an amazing experience. There's 200 riders, all with their own unique stories, all with their own tales of trouble and and fighting and battle and recovery and it's it's just really amazing to be mm -hmm. around so many great people mm -hmm. and hear all their stories and have you always been a biker i didn't <laughs> have you ever been a biker maybe that's the appropriate uh, question i mean like most people i was always on a bike as a kid you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. and then uh i kind of lost touch with it and the first day that i got to the the Great Lakes Challenge was the first time that I had ever been on a road bike. Wow. <laughs> when I heard when I got invited to go, I went and I got a like a single speed bike mm -hmm. from one of the bike shops downtown, and then it's I've been on one ever since, pretty much. And what was that experience like? I mean, what did you think about, and what did you feel as you were consumed in you know your past experiences, as well as thinking about your comrades as you're riding your bike? What was that like? It's. It's such an interesting experience because some part of me feels like I I have this continued duty mm -hmm. to kind of live a life that the men who aren't here anymore would like to be a part of. So I try to put myself out there and, and do as many of these challenging and active things as I possibly can. And the way that the rides are set up, you ride uh, in columns of two. Mm -hmm. So mile after mile you're usually next to the same person for a long time so you really get to have this shared experience on a bicycle doing something you're working it's exhausting you're doing upwards of 80 miles a day it's hard and it almost kind of breaks you down to get to that point where all your walls get broken down mm -hmm. and you can really develop a bond with the other people on the ride mm -hmm. wow 
I guess it's similar to different challenges that you felt when you were, you know, stationed and abroad is you're bound by brotherhood. You're right there next to each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many different aspects to coming home mm-hmm. or being in the military. There's so many there's so many different issues that got brought up, orders, conflicts, rights, and basically what it really all boils down to is the person to your right and left. Mm-hmm. The fact that you have to go, you have to go together to get through this. And I found if you continue to do that even after you come back, that it is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. You have to continue to live the civilian life or the life after war, the way that you did when you were in. Mm-hmm. And now again, you're coming back and standing side by side, and you're bringing Project Hero to this area. Uh, so what made you kind of want to continue this and really enable other people to experience what you experienced? Really just the benefit mm-hmm. I saw from the people that I was on the ride with. Um, like, There's just countless stories of people who have said that ride recovery has saved their life or that it has changed the life for the better or it has given them that tool to get through life. Mm-hmm. And... After I saw that and after the effect it had on me, I had to do whatever I could to give that opportunity to other people. So after the Great Lakes Challenge, I went to California to do the California Challenge in October. And the whole ride, you're you're on the Pacific Coast Highway, like one of the most famous highways in the country. And... You're out overlooking the ocean in the most beautiful scenes you've ever seen. And it's not a lot of things, it's not a lot of, it's not a thing a lot of people get the chance to do Mm -hmm. on a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So you're just feeling incredibly privileged to do this. And then after the California Challenge, I attended the Project Hero training camp. And basically they go through the process of getting bicycles, getting the things that you need in order to run a regional representation of the larger ride recovery organization mm-hmm. because the the organization as a whole ride to recovery there's only about 200 people max that can go on these challenges just due to logistic reasons and planning and mm-hmm. and stuff like that so in order to reach out to a greater number of people they implemented the project hero program which basically allows people to get onto bikes on a daily basis anywhere in the country. And then and then the new riders who aren't, haven't been on a bike for a while, they get to work up and then get to go do these challenges that are all over the country and all over the world. And what has been the response from people as you're developing this here in this area, maybe from community members as well as from veterans? Um, I've got a lot of support as mm-hmm. far as uh, outreach and a lot of people want to help. Um, the biggest challenge is finding people who want to participate, actually. Um, I found that not a lot of people look at cycling as uh, something that's number one on their list to do. Mm-hmm. And I was the same way. When I was stationed in California, near my base, we saw cyclists riding by on a regular basis. So they were always kind of viewed to me as pests, like just <laughs> just people on bikes, like, come on, get in a car, like, get with the real world, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I got on one, and I, I discovered how fun it can be. Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, how much of a challenge it can be because there's a really big dynamic to 
to riding in a group. Um, your your wheels inches away. Sometimes you're going near 30 miles an hour. And how I really think that it helps veterans when you're doing it like that is you have to sh- you have to stop thinking. You have to be in the moment and only focus on what you're doing. And so many times, uh, people who struggle when they come home or they're just they just don't feel like the person they once were. They let all these worries constantly creep into their mind, and they don't. They have trouble finding that one, that thing that lets them just let go. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way I was. So, that time on a bike for me is peace. It's the time when my mind isn't questioning and racing. It's just it's calm and it's quiet. And mm-hmm. and you can find that a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be cycling. I and I hope that anybody that feels like that finds that thing and you know if it, if cycling's not your thing more power to you but you know I just I just want to provide the opportunity to those people that mm-hmm. you know maybe they want to give it a shot and looking at your life how have you changed you know we talked to you a year about a year ago about your documentary but how have you changed ever since you got back into the states and as you're developing into civilian life yeah last time we talked I was at kind of an inter- interesting point because I had just, you know, publicly admitted that, you know, I'd been diagnosed with PTSD and that, mm-hmm. that just, one, it, it feels good to get that off your back. But the, on the other hand, you're wondering how people are going to view you, mm-hmm. if they're going to look at you differently, if they're going to pity you. And so after that, I just had this tremendous outreach of support. You know, people were just like, just keep doing what you're doing. And every time that I write an article, every time that I talk to somebody, every time that I make a video, people just say, just keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. I just, that's the thing that drives me and keeps me doing. And, you know, I've always had the approach that if I help even one person, then that's then I will feel like I've done what I was here to do. So, mm-hmm. so far, so good. I think you're doing a good job. <laughs> well, Logan Stark, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I'm good. Thanks for having me on again. I like coming on the radio. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. We appreciate it, and we wish you the best of luck with Project Hero and everything else you have on your plate. Of course. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on 89 FM. The impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. I am 
Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Now, in addition to veterans using biking as a way to heal, I found another Michigan State University student who is using biking as a way to fund and assist affordable housing efforts. It may sound like a unique mix, but it actually works. Here is Michigan State University student Madeline Valentine with her story about Bike and Build. Bike and Build organizes cross-country bicycle tours for young people, 18 to 25, Um, and they're doing this all for affordable housing, so to raise awareness and also um, build houses along the way. So there's eight different routes across the country. Um, I'm on one of the eight. I'm on the northern route, so that's going from um, New Hampshire to Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's about 4,500 miles, Um, and it's going to take us about two and a half months, and we'll stop once a week and work on a build project. We'll be partnering with different um, organizations like Habitat for Humanity, Rebuilding Together, um, and uh, partnering with people in the local community to get these build projects done. And what made you want to do this? You know, I actually, I heard about it from my manager. I work at the Student Organic Farm, and he did it, I want to say like eight years ago or something like that. And just, you know, there was just one day where we were sitting around doing farm work and I, I was just like, that sounds amazing. I have to do it, you know. And um, as soon as the, you know, I got the chance to sign up, I was signed up as soon as I could. And are you a big biker? You know, right now I, I bike to class. I wouldn't consider myself a biker. Um, I think probably the longest bike ride I've been on is like 25 miles one time with my aunt. Um, but it's a cool challenge. I'm excited to, um, you know, just starting to get in shape and I, I really enjoy it. So I think, um, yeah, after this trip, I'll definitely consider myself a biker. How has the training been going? Um, the weather's been a little inclement, but, um, you know, I think it's been a good challenge to just be like, okay, it's freezing cold today, but I'm still going to get on my bike and I'm still going to, um, yeah, go for a ride. Cause yeah, I mean, this summer I'm not, you know, not really going to have a choice. I'm going to wake up every day. And so it's been going well. And how many miles would that be a day just about It went during the summer? So we'll start at around 40 and then um, work up. Um, it really depends on the train. Mm-hmm. Our longest day is going to be 115 miles. And then, you know, it'll be anywhere <clears throat> from 60 to 80 to 100 when you start talking about those distances and the challenge of, you know, building things as your body is tired and you're going along the way, are you nervous at all or are you um, frightened from in- any of those challenges? I think the really cool thing about this program is you are going with a group of 30 other people coming from all different backgrounds all across the country um, and also, you know, different levels of training. So to be able to do this with those people and kind of all hold each other up. Um, I'm No, I'm not, you know, I'm not really nervous. I'm just really excited and really, really excited to meet my team and the people I'm going to be doing it with. Have you met any of your team yet? Um, I haven't. No, I've, we've been in contact online, you know, through the wonders of the <laughs> interweb. Uh, but we're, we're going to get some time when we first meet to do some team building stuff in New Hampshire, and I'm really looking forward to that. And when is the official takeoff date? June 14th. 
Yeah, so we have our whole route set. So our whole um, every day is planned. You know, we know how far we're going to get, and we know who we're going to be staying with. Um, we'll be hosted by different religious and community organizations, um, and they'll put us up. They'll provide us with um, dinner, and then in exchange, we get to give them $100 to donate however they'd like to whatever organization in their community. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, is there a place that you're looking forward to the most uh, in terms of riding through or visiting or stopping? You know, I've never been to Montana, and just from pictures and what from what people have told me, I'm just I'm so excited to see that terrain, um, and then also Idaho and and Washington too. And what do you think it is about you know challenging yourself physically while trying to contribute positively to society that has this big draw? You know, I think part of this whole trip is um, kind of the attention that we receive from it. So, you know, I'm raising money right now. We're donating the money. We're doing the build projects, but also we're we're very high. Pro- we're going to be very high profile along the way. So, a group of thirty people all dressed in blue, you know, biking that draws a lot of attention. And I think that's really cool that this program um, focuses not only on the building, um, but also the awareness about the mm-hmm. issue. What did your parents say when you ter- told them that you were doing this? I think they were kind of surprised, like, oh, you're you're a biker now, <laughs> you know, just because this is, um, um, I guess I, I've never really done something so challenging or something that I've had to train so much for, so they were a little surprised, but I guess um, looking forward to surprising them and also surprising myself. Mm-hmm. And in that surprise, what are you most looking forward to at the end of the trip? You know, what do you hope to bring away from this expedition per se um i guess just a sense of accomplishment and also just a lot of knowledge about the issue um, of affordable housing we are each of us is preparing a presentation on a different um topic about affordable housing because it's really something that you know spans so many different issues um education and health care and you know community safety um and so really just looking forward to learning from my teammates and talking to people and getting that firsthand knowledge about the issue. And I'm sure you'll be consumed by thought as you're pedaling away just with all that you've experienced and see. And now how can people support your adventure and maybe donate? Um, so right now my goal is to raise $4,500 for the trip. Um, and that'll go to supporting me on my journey and also the building projects, and if they would like to donate, um, they can go online to www.bikeandbuild.org um, and then slash rider slash 7341, it's kind of long, or you can just go to bikeandbuild.org, and then if you'd like to donate, you can donate in my name. There'll be a drop-down menu. Um, any final thoughts as you go forth in your training and soon journey? Um, just excited, um, really pumped, and yeah, I would encourage anyone who's interested in the issue to get involved because there's so much you can do right here in Lansing with Habitat for Humanity and different organizations. And I will be sure to check back with you when you return back in August. So with that, thank you very much, Madeline. Thanks so much. And as we concluded that interview, Madeline wanted to say thank you to her parents, family, and friends for their continued support as she trains for her long journey ahead.
I heard this whole story before Where the people keep a killing for the metaphors But don't leave much up to the imagination So I wanna give this imagery back But I know it just ain't so easy like that So I turn the page, I read the story again And again and again Sure seems the same With a different name We're breaking and rebuilding And we're growing Always guessing, never knowing Shocking, but we're nothing We're just moments We're clever, but we're clueless We're just human Amusing and confusing We're trying But where is this all leading? We'll never know Say disaster when I take a time lapse and look at it back and find the last word. Maybe that's just the answer that we're after. But after all, we're just a bubble in a boiling pot. Just one breath in a chain of thought. Moments just combusting. Feel certain, but we'll never, never know. Sure seems the same. Give it a different name. We're begging and we're needing and we're trying and we're breathing. Never know. Shocking, but we're nothing. We're just moments. We're clever, but we're clueless. We're just human, amusing and confusing. We're helping, we're building, and we're growing. Never know, you can never know, never know, never know. Knock, knock on my door to door. Metaphors better than yours, and you can either sink or swim. Things are looking pretty grim. If you don't believe in what this won't feed in, it's got no feeling. So we'll read it again, and again, and again. Sure seems the same. So many different names. Our hearts are strong, our heads are weak. We'll always be competing, never knowing. We're shocking, but we're nothing. Just moments. We're clever, but we're clueless. We're just human, amusing, confusing. But the truth is, all we got is questions. We'll never know. WDBM Impact 89FM. This is Abby Newton. That was a favorite from Gabriela Saldivia, our producer. Now, people usually go skydiving to experience the thrill and cross it off the bucket list. But in 2001, a woman named Kelly Green used skydiving as a tool to empower and overcome her past. So she was sexually assaulted, but instead of fearing the anniversary of the assault, she decided to ever overcome another fear of hers. Heights. Now, Michigan State University's sexual assault intervention team is joining the initiative. Volunteers are raising money, and some will even be jumping out of an airplane. I talked with MSU psychology student Brandon Jackman about the intervention team. 
Counseling Center Sexual Assault Program. Um, and so we have over 100 advocates who are trained to either staff a 24-hour crisis hotline or they um, do medical advocacy. So if a survivor goes to Sparrow Hospital, we'll send out an advocate to help them there. And we also do help with legal stuff. Um, so if someone wants a support system to go to the courts with them or file for a personal protection order, we can do that. And then we also just do a lot of community outreach stuff. So raising awareness on campus, um, being a part of different conferences and stuff like that. And how prevalent are sexual assaults on campus? Unfortunately, a lot more prevalent that we might feel comfortable with or mm -hmm. like. Um, it's estimated that one in four women will be sexually assaulted while on a college campus. Um, so that's yeah. a lot. Wow. That, that statistic alone really speaks for the severity of this issue. And uh, Now, what made you kind of get involved with this, uh, the crisis team? Um, my freshman year, I was looking for different opportunities for me to have hands-on experience as mm -hmm. a psychology major. Sure. And so when I came across this program, I thought, you know, they have a great cause, and they are really organized and efficient in what they do. And as soon as I joined the team, I was welcomed with open arms, and I've met so many great people who also volunteer through this program. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, lately, you guys are trying to accomplish something a little different than usual called Operation Freefall. And so you're getting involved with this really unique way of bringing awareness to sexual assault crises. So can you explain what's going on with the Operation Freefall? Yeah, so Operation Freefall was started in 2001 when the Speaking Out Against Rape, it's an organization mm -hmm. um, also abbreviated as SOAR, um, the founder of that organization decided to reclaim the anniversary of her sexual assault, which you know is typically a day that people would dread, but she wanted to reclaim it and turn it into a day of triumph. So she decided to go skydiving. So we are taking part in a nationwide event where people go skydiving to raise awareness and funds for sexual assault. Will you be skydiving yourself? I will not be this year, but I did two years ago, and it was so empowering and amazing. Um, so what is it about you know, jumping out of an airplane and conquering this great fear, associating that with sexual assault? Um, so some of the people who are jumping this year haven't been sexually assaulted, but skydiving and raising awareness is something that helps them tackle other personal problems they're facing. Mm -hmm. But for those who have been, it can be something um, to turn a bad event into something positive. So you are able to experience this new um, really adventurous thing that you might not have been able to do otherwise. It's a new version of the crisis intervention team, go skydiving. Yes. And <laughs> um, talking about that crisis intervention team, what do you tell people? You know, what what is that relationship building like, you know, when you are faced with someone who's been through this terrible situation, how do you help them start to make amends? I mean, the most important thing is to let them know that it's not their fault, mm -hmm. because unfortunately we live in a very victim-blaming society where they're most likely to say, like, well, what were you wearing? Were you drinking? Were you out late by yourself? I mean, those things don't cause sexual assault. Only rapists do. So that's the first thing that we like to say. Um, we also like them to know that they're not alone, because this is such a prevalent thing in society. So there are many other survivors who have made it through. Mm -hmm. um, and we also talk about how the healing process isn't a straight shoot, how there are lots of ups and downs downs, but you're still progressing and, you know, becoming whole again. Mm -hmm. I like that, becoming whole again. And as you, the crisis intervention team, continues to help, you know, men and women become whole again, this Operation F Free Fall will continue and you're raising funds, correct? Yes, we Is are. there a way that we can donate or a place that we can donate? Yes, there are. Um, if you go on to our website, which is nrape.msu.edu, there's like a scrolling advertisement mm -hmm. um, for Operation Freefall. And so if you click Learn More, it'll give you a bunch of more information, and then it will take you to a link to our fundraising page. 
So we, um, everyone who wants to jump has to raise a minimum of $650. So if you can go through, you can look at all of the people who are participating and you can donate to the people who have less than 650. Mm. And as people get involved with this event and, you know, get that Excuse me, let me try that again. As people get involved with this event, what do you hope that they draw away from watching Operation Free Fall as well as getting more information about sexual assault in general? Well, the most important thing about doing this fundraiser is to raise awareness mm -hmm. on campus and just in the general community. Um, so a lot of the people who have been jumping have been posting things on Facebook, which Facebook is a very efficient means of spreading the word about different issues and causes. Um, and then also we just want people to know on campus that we are doing things mm -hmm. um, actively to kind of prevent and to help others who have been assaulted. Well, thank you very much, Brianna. Any final thoughts? Nope, just please consider that even $5 is really helpful for us. Mm -hmm. Great, well, thank you. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. This is Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Now, every once in a while, you find yourself coming across a unique performer, comedian, or musician. That is exactly what happened to me when I found Riders in the Sky, a Western cowboy quartet. I sat down with one of the members, Ranger Doug. He has the full story. How would I describe it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's <laughs> sort of the Sons of the Pioneers meet the Marx Brothers. Uh, of course, I've used that description before, and people didn't know what I was talking about. But it's old-fashioned uh, Western music with a lot of harmony and and uh, songs about the West, and uh, a lot of humor too, a lot of craziness going on at the same time. And uh, it's a mix of the two, and it's proved to be uh, something that's seen us through 36 long years. Mm -hmm. And how did it get it start originally? Oh well, it began. Uh, I was uh, singing a few doing a solo cowboy thing, kind of, but I was entranced by the music of the Sons of the Pioneers and the beautiful songwriting, and I really wanted to put together some guys, and I tried a couple of different times, and the, the magic just happened on that November night in 1977 when uh, Too Slim, who is still, we're still together for all these years, and another guy named Wendy Bill Collins played in a little folk club and for about eight drunks, and <laughs> we, I don't know how they liked it, but we had the time of our life. We said, we got to keep doing this. And strangely enough, uh, things began to build, and uh, Bill left. He didn't think there was enough security in the, in cowboy music, so uh, Woody Paul joined us, and that was a brilliant stroke. He's a great fiddler, great songwriter, and he sings tenor, so what more could you ask? <laughs> and we uh, built a career for about 10 years, and did some uh, wonderful things. And then uh, Joey the Cowpolka King joined us on the accordion. Mm. He is uh, not only the master musician of that instrument in the country, but he's a arranger and produces the records. And uh, so it's been four for about 26 years. And um, your first performance was on that November night in 1977. But how have you changed since then? Maybe the music side as well as the performance side. <laughs> We've gotten a whole lot older. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, of course, we've improved enormously as musicians, and uh, I think that would probably be, I mean, the, the comedy is, is more sophisticated, too, because we were just winging it that first night, but the music especially, our ears are so much better from uh, playing three or four shows a week for 36 years, you, 
you get better on your instruments, your your ears get better. You, uh, we learn to take care of our voices. And, uh, it's an entirely different, it's the same idea, but it's, it's a whole lot better than it was in uh, November of 77, I can tell you that. And what drew you to Western music and uh, yodeling in particular way back when? Well, uh, of course, to the age I am and when the era we grew up, uh, cowboys and cowboy music were uh, still in the movies and on TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, rediscovering it in the early 1970s kind of uh, brought back wonderful memories of, of childhood because, you know, a kid doesn't much understand about uh, uh, getting drunk and uh, <laughs> your girlfriend blowing up your truck and stuff like that. <laughs> a kid understands the wide open spaces and the uh, and uh, sitting around a campfire singing with your friends and riding horses and stuff. So it was, I think that's why that music has always had an appeal to children. Mm-hmm. As an adult, I was just blown away by the beauty of the lyrics and the, the poetic quality and the sophistication of the music. And uh, I came to it as a songwriter and a singer and a guitar player. Uh, suddenly I realized how how much this music had to offer, what a rich vein it was. And nobody was doing it. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, if it was on records at all, it was in the nostalgia band. And I just thought this was too good a piece of American culture and music to die. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ranger Doug, you are called the governor of the great state of rhythm. How accurate is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not accurate at all. <laughs> I've never been sworn in. Well, shoot. It's, uh, <laughs> It's just sort of a, a moniker slim mm-hmm. made up because uh, I'm one of the few guys keeping the, the uh, that classic uh, swing rhythm guitar style alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all. And uh, among other things, you have been the first Western music to join the Grand Ole Opry, uh, which is a fantastic accolade. But what have been some of your other favorite performances or memories with the Riders in the Sky? Oh, man, there's so many, of mm-hmm. course. We played every state. That that was an accomplishment that I'm very proud of. We've uh, played at Carnegie Hall, and I guess the live show that I think is the, the biggest feather in our cap of many is playing at the Hollywood Bowl for mm-hmm. three nights at the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic. That was just uh, unbelievable. That's just kind of a pinnacle. Uh, winning two Grammys is uh, a very cool thing. And being nominated uh, uh, other times is sort of the recognition of your peers. That that meant a lot. Uh, being on the Grand Ole Opry, of course, joining that. Mm-hmm. It's just been, you know, it's just been a marvelous career, whether we're playing a, a little county fair or, or the Hollywood Bowl. We're just keeping a, a wonderful American musical style alive. And when you were a young child, or even in your teens, did you ever expect your career to look like this? No, certainly not. Mm-hmm. I uh, came from a very nice family. <laughs> had no uh, idea that their son would be a cowboy yodeler. <laughs> uh, my dad was a doctor, and of course that's what he wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always loved performing, and I loved playing the guitar and singing. And uh, When the opportunity came to do it professionally, that. I finally, in college, realized that's what I really wanted to try to do. And went on and got a good education at uh, the University of Michigan, of all places. Oh, my goodness. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was always a fallback if I couldn't, if I couldn't make a career in music work. Mm-hmm. 
And how did you train yourself to yodel? Is it just a repetition? Is it a bunch of lessons? How would one go about doing this? Well, yodeling is a funny thing. Uh, it's uh, My uncle could yodel until I grew up uh, hearing it. And uh, I could just do it. And if you can do it, you can train it. It's kind of like the trumpet, you know. You don't want to be around it when you're first learning it. <laughs> but <laughs> once you master it, it's a, it's a pretty good thing. Uh, it's just a matter of practice. If you can break your voice like that, if you can, there's no way to teach it. You just can't do it. Kind of like curling your tongue, you know. <laughs> you, you can either do it or you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And um, as you have been together for 36 years, what kind of legacy do you hope to leave, uh, not only with Riders in the Sky, but perhaps in the music world? Well, you know, that's a hard thing to, uh, that's a good question, but it's hard to answer when you're in the middle of a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of have to leave that to the music historians and the and the, the writers and the uh, folklorists or whatever. Uh, I don't know. We're we're out there on the road. We're trying to make people laugh, trying to make people happy, and uh, preserve this wonderful American style. And if we do leave a legacy, I'll just leave that to the to uh, the, the journalists and scholars to decide. <laughs> And my last question is, what advice do you have for young musicians who are hoping to uh, take this as a career? Uh, never leave your wallet in the dressing room. <laughs> I take it that might have happened to you. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you found it? Uh, it was empty. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> that is a good piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know. You know, you, we had a manager who always said, uh, you have to be first, best, or different. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a, I would say, find, find your niche and, uh, and pursue it and, and believe in it. Well, Ranger Dog, it seems like you'd certainly have find, found your niche with Writers in the Sky. Um, any final thoughts? No, I just uh, thank you so much for taking the time with me and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Looking forward to so many more years of roaming America's highways and yodeling and uh, singing songs about the great outdoors. Well, as are we. Uh, with that, I say thank you very much and good luck on your next performances as well as uh, your traveling. All right. Thanks a million for taking the time. And again, that was Ranger Doug of Writers in the Sky. And that is all we have here tonight on Exposure on this fine Tuesday evening. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, station manager, Sam Riddle, and general manager, Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other Exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Next week, we have a special Exposure segment all about gender. We bring science, masculinity, feminism, and gender across races and religion to the forefront. That is all next week at 7 p.m. on Tuesday. Until then, good luck to our fellow Spartans in the NCAA tournaments. The Michigan State University women's team is currently down by 12 points, but we hope to see that rise climb right up. Uh, Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.